Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast. Last time, we looked at how Vikings started to trade along the rivers from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, and eventually took control over the trading posts along that route, establishing a network of city-states called Gordariki. We talked about the legendary Rurik and his successors, and their careers as rulers of Holmgård and eventually Kiev. We also touched upon the controversy surrounding the Scandinavian role in the establishment of Russia. This time, we'll focus on what awaited the Scandinavians who reached the end of the trade routes and actually arrived in Constantinople. Whether they were merchants or warriors, what attracted them was the opportunity to make a lot of money and become very rich. And even though some of them did return home enormously wealthy, others didn't make it. Some didn't even make it home. Episode 14, The Great City. The trade route from the Varangians to the Greeks could begin in a variety of places in Scandinavia. Last time we talked about Hedeby, Birka and Gotland but the end of the line was always Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantine Empire. Back in the year 324, the Roman Emperor Constantine established his capital at the strategically important spot where he not only had full control over sea traffic between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean, but also easy access to all the troublesome corners of his empire. With time, the city grew in size, wealth and power, and when the Western Roman Empire fell in the year 476 and the city of Rome descended into irrelevance and decay, Constantinople rose to become the unrivaled queen of cities, with churches, libraries, palaces and massive walls unparalleled in Europe. The Scandinavians, who were used to small trading towns with hundreds or maybe a few thousand inhabitants, were awed by the splendor and the sheer size of Constantinople. They called it the Great City, or Miklagord in Old Norse. They would bring slaves, furs, timber, honey, wax, amber and other goods to the markets of Miklagord, and would leave with silver coins or goods to sell in Gordariki or other markets. Byzantine wares that would be brought north by returning Scandinavians included wine, spices, jewelry, silk, and other fine fabrics. According to the monk Nestor, if you remember him and his primary chronicle that we talked about last time, the first Scandinavians reached Constantinople in the year 852, so just a few years before Rurik took over Aldegiborg, in other words. But we actually have another source claiming that there were Scandinavians in Constantinople at least as early as the 830s. In the Annals of St. Burton, a Frankish text from the middle of the 9th century, there's an episode where Scandinavians visited Constantinople in 838. The Byzantines apparently called them Rus and were under the impression that they lived in Gordariki, which they very well might have. These Scandinavians tried to get back home again by attaching themselves to a Byzantine diplomatic mission to Louis the Pious of Francia, which, if we're completely honest, seems to be a bit of a detour if you live somewhere up the rivers north of the Black Sea. 
Louis the Pious certainly became suspicious, maybe not so much due to the convoluted travel plans as because he recognized these men as Scandinavians, a people that recently had started to raid the coasts of his own realm. He went as far as to warn the Byzantine emperor Theophilos that these so-called Rus might be spies. The emperor's reaction to the warning hasn't survived, so we don't know if it took it seriously or not. Chances are that he didn't, because he was rather busy fighting against intruding armies on the eastern borders of his empire. But maybe he should have listened to Louis. Less than a quarter of a century after those first Scandinavians visited in Constantinople, hitching a ride home via Francia, the Vikings showed up in force outside the Theodosian walls. At sunset, on June 18, 860, an armada of approximately 200 ships emerged from the Bosporus. Thousands of Vikings jumped out of the ships and started to pillage and burn the suburbs of Constantinople. Residents who tried to resist, or just didn't manage to escape, were killed left and right. Eyewitnesses described a wholesale massacre of civilians. The Archbishop of Constantinople at the time, a guy called Photius, recorded that the attack came as a complete surprise. The Northmen showed up like a thunderbolt from heaven, and, continuing with his metaphors, he described how they descended on the city like a swarm of wasps. This attack, in the summer of 860, is actually the only major Viking campaign against Constantinople documented by the Byzantines themselves, not least thanks to Arch Archbishop Photius. The reason for the attack was the military aid given to the Khazars in the form of Byzantine engineers helping to construct the fortress of Sarkel, that we'll talk more about next time. At this po point in history, the Khazars were allies of Constantinople and competitors with the Scandinavian Rus, vying with them for control over the lucrative trade with the Arabs and other peoples further east. But again, more about that next time. If the primary chronicle is to be believed, and you know I have my reservations about that. Then it was our old friends Askold and Deer who were behind the surprise attack on the Byzantine capital. Whoever had planned it though, the timing of the attack was well chosen. The Emperor Michael III was absent. In the beginning of June, so just a week or so before, he'd marched off to the east together with the bulk of his army to try and stop an invasion into Syria. That meant that the defense of Constantinople was weakened and left in the hands of the city prefect, Niketas Orifas. Luckily for Constantinople, though, those were some pretty competent hands. He acted quickly and managed to have the city gates slammed shut in the face of the advancing Viking hordes. But he couldn't do much to save the suburbs outside of the formidable Theodosian walls. These walls had been constructed under Emperor Theodosius II in the 5th century and were impregnable to the Vikings, who had next to no experience or skill in siege warfare. Within these walls, the defenders were safe, but they could just watch in horror as the seemingly unstoppable Vikings burned the city outside the walls and murdered its defenseless inhabitants. The Viking flotilla was also safe from counterattacks since the dreaded Byzantine fleet was engaged in fighting against the empire's enemies on the Mediterranean Sea. Even though the situation was dire, the city prefect Orifas and Archbishop Photius managed to defend the city within the walls and keep the inhabitants from panicking. They also sent a message to the emperor alerting him to the situation and begging him to turn the army around and come to the rescue of the city. When the emperor returned, 
he was smuggled into the city by night. He and the archbishop then brought out one of the many sacred relics kept in the city's churches, the Veil of the Virgin Mary. Then they carried it around the city walls in a procession, crying out to the Mother of God to save the city from the wrath of the heathens. When the procession reached the harbor, the emperor dipped the sacred veil in the waters, and, at least according to one Byzantine source, the fine clear weather was immediately replaced by a violent storm that destroyed many of the ships in the Viking Armada. The attackers were so frightened by this display of celestial power that they packed up and left as quickly as they could. Other, less pious sources don't mention the miraculous storm. They only relate how Photios carried the sacred relic around the city walls and that this did wonders for the morale of soldiers and civilians alike. And eventually, the Vikings gave up and went home. In the beginning of August, they must have realized that they would never be able to breach the city walls, and the imperial army was to be expected back in the capital's defense at any moment. At this point, more than two weeks after the initial attacks, there can't have been much left to loot or burn. And since Vikings were never keen on open battle if they could avoid it, and certainly not against such a formidable foe as the Imperial Byzantine army, they probably thought it best to quit while they were ahead. The Vikings returned to Kiev in triumph, laden with treasure. The memory of the successful campaign against the great city lived on for generations among their descendants. And it's quite possible that descriptions of later attacks on Constantinople are modeled on the campaign of 860, possibly even conflated with it. One such attack occurred in the year 907, under the leadership of Helgi. Or at least it might have. The primary chronicle mentions it, and even implies that it was the most successful attack on Constantinople ever carried out by the Rus. But there is no mention at all in the Byzantine sources of any Viking attack that year. This can mean one of three things. Either it didn't happen, or the Byzantines were so embarrassed about it that they chose to pretend it never happened. Or, which is perhaps the most likely explanation, the attack described in the primary chronicle as such a great triumph did in fact take place, but not in the year 907. To Nestor, who penned the primary chronicle, it was important to assign the military success in Constantinople to Helgi, who belonged to the ruling dynasty in Kiev, so he might have fibbed the dates slightly so that Helgi could get the credit for the 860 attack, an attack that, interestingly enough, is depicted as a failure in the primary chronicle. So according to Nestor, Helgi launched an attack against Constantinople in the year 907. And this attack was so successful that he managed to force the Byzantine emperor to sign a treaty with the Rus that gave them favorable trading conditions in Constantinople. The primary chronicle records the details of that treaty, giving us an interesting insight into how the Byzantines made business with the Rus, be it in 860 or 907. First of all, the Byzantines agreed to pay a tribute for the attackers to go away, something we recognize from the Danegeld paid by Franks and Anglo-Saxons in Western Europe. Then the treaty went on to regulate the conditions under which Scandinavians would be allowed to trade in Constantinople. Under certain conditions, they were allowed to stay and to trade in the city for up to six months without paying any taxes. First of all, they could only be 50 Scandinavian traders in Constantinople at any one time. When they arrived, they had to register with the authorities, and before entering the city, they had to surrender their weapons. 
They could only enter Constantinople through the Silokirkos gate, and they had to be escorted in by soldiers from the Imperial Guard. Once inside, they had to confine themselves to a quarter in the southwestern part of the city, close to the gate through which they entered. The Primary Chronicle concludes the description of the treaty by mentioning that it was confirmed by the Byzantines kissing the cross, whereas the Scandinavians swore by their arms, invoking their gods. So clearly, this was before they had become Christian, even though the first attempts at proselytizing had already begun back in the middle of the 9th century. A few years later, in 911, another and more detailed treaty was signed. The stipulations on trade were similar, but the 911 treaty also included other rules, such as how to treat runaway slaves, inheritance in case a Scandinavian trader were to die in Constantinople, the limits on the amount of Byzantine silk that could be exported, as well as the status of Vikings who became imperial mercenaries. More on that in just a few moments. Like I mentioned last time, Ingvar tried to copy Helgi's prowess in war, but with considerably less success. One instance that the Primary Chronicle mentions is an attack on Constantinople in the early summer of 941. We don't have any Byzantine source that can verify this attack, but we do have a description penned by an Italian whose father-in-law was an envoy in Constantinople at the time of Ingvar's campaign. We don't know how many the attacking Vikings were. The Primary Chronicle talks of 10,000 ships, but our Italian source only mentions 1,000. The latter is probably more likely to be closer to the truth. Once again though, the attackers had good intel about when to attack, because the Byzantine fleet was away fighting an Arab fleet on the Mediterranean, and the bulk of the army had been moved to the east to stave off yet another invasion. But as well informed as he was about the whereabouts of the Byzantine forces, Ingvar apparently lacked some basic knowledge about their tactics and weaponry. In order to defend the city, the Byzantines sent out 15 ships into the Bosporus. The ships were old and unimpressive to look at, but equipped with contraptions that could throw the dreaded Greek fire both from the fore and the aft of the vessels. When the Vikings surrounded these ships, trying to capture them, the Byzantines opened fire with devastating effect. The attacking ships turned into burning infernos, and many of the Vikings who jumped into the water to escape the flames drowned, unable to swim in their heavy breastplates and other armor. Any Vikings who were caught alive had their heads chopped off. Despite the slaughter, Ingvar must have made it out of there alive, because only three years later he tried to attack Constantinople again. The defenders managed to destroy parts of his fleet with Greek fire this time as well, but in the end the emperor seems to have concluded that it wasn't worth it to put up uh, with these ruse attacks every few years. So he signed a new treaty with Ingvar. The new treaty stipulated that no trading delegation from Gordariki was allowed to approach Constantinople if it hadn't been preceded by a letter from the ruler of Kiev with exact details about the number of ships included, as well as a declaration of the peaceful intentions of the crews. Clearly, the Byzantines still wanted to trade with the Rus, but they weren't willing to put up with any more surprise attacks. This treaty held for 15 years, until Ingvar and Helga's son took over power in Kiev, and he felt the need to prove his ability as a warrior by attacking the great city. But we'll leave that campaign out of our narrative, because, as we've concluded already last time, at that point the ruling dynasty in Kiev wasn't really Scandinavian any longer. Now let's go back to those Viking mercenaries in Constantinople that I mentioned earlier. 
So, not all Scandinavians who arrived in Constantinople were traitors. Some took jobs as imperial bodyguards, in the so-called Varangian Guard. The name comes from the Old Norse word Vering, or defender, a word used by the Scandinavians themselves to describe those Viking mercenaries. The first members of the Varangian Guard were recruited in the 870s, and they came from Kiev. Later, Vikings from Scandinavia proper would also join. The force working in Constantinople to protect the emperor soon became an elite force that enjoyed a widespread reputation for skill and loyalty, and it existed for about 200 years. The official creation of the Varangian Guard as a distinct permanent force was in the year 988. Emperor Basil II asked Vladimir of Kiev to send him soldiers, and in exchange the Byzantine ruler gave Vladimir his sister Anna's hand in marriage. Vladimir jumped at the opportunity not only to become the brother-in-law of the emperor himself, but also to get rid of some 6,000 warriors whose salaries he couldn't afford to pay anyway. The commander of the Varangian Guard was called the Akolutos, or Companion, and he was supposed to accompany the emperor wherever he went. He was actually usually not a Scandinavian, but rather a native Byzantine. One place he and the Varangians would frequently go with the emperor was to church, since religion was such an important part of imperial life. If you go to Istanbul today and visit the splendid Byzantine cathedral Hagia Sophia, you should climb the stairs to the southern gallery. There in the balustrade, some guy named, named Halvdan, possibly one of the emperor's bored Viking bodyguards, has carved his name into the stone using Viking Age runes. Even though their main task was to protect the emperor, his family and the imperial palace, sometimes the Varangian guard also functioned as an elite force within the Byzantine army and fleet more generally. The Vikings participated in campaigns in the 11th century in Syria and Italy as well as in Central Asia, basically wherever they were needed. The Varangian Guard would often be used as a sort of reserves and be deployed at critical moments in, in the battle to either save the situation or to provide the last push to win. When he established the Varangian Guard, Basil II deliberately chose to set up a force made up of foreigners with no political ties in Constantinople. Basil didn't trust local soldiers, whose loyalties could shift very quickly if a usurper or scheming court functionary dangled a sufficient amount of money in front of them. But later emperors would learn that the loyalty of the Varangian Guard lay not with them personally, but rather with the crown. An excellent example is the unfortunate emperor Nikiferos II, who was assassinated in the year 969. When the emperor's Varangian bodyguards finally arrived at the scene, it was already too late. Nikiforos was already dead. At that moment, instead of avenging their dead master, the Varangians knelt and hailed his no doubt pretty nervous murderer, John Tsimiskes, as the new emperor. Beyond their loyalty, the Vikings were also popular bodyguards because of their known skill as warriors, especially compared to other barbarian, that is, non-Byzantine, peoples. Many of them had participated in various military campaigns and had proven their worth as soldiers on the battlefield before joining the Varangian Guard, and contemporary sources described how the Scandinavians attacked with reckless rage and neither cared about losing blood nor their wounds. The Byzantines also found the Varangian uniforms terrifying, long hair, free-flowing, not in a man bun, chainmail shirts with dragon embroidery and a ruby in one ear. They also all carried a shield and an enormous double-edged axe, and it might have been the weapon more than the earring that made them terrifying.
Just as Scandinavians were popular soldiers in the Halcyon Hall of the Byzantine emperors, service in the Varangian Guard was also popular and prestigious among Scandinavians with a taste for war, adventure and riches. Many veterans from the Guard returned home to Scandinavia as very wealthy men, which of course tempted many others to follow in their footsteps. Young men left for Constantinople in such numbers that we have indications that some local authorities in Scandinavia even felt the need to try and stem the tide. For instance, the regional law code in West Gothland, a region in southwestern Sweden, established that you would be excluded from any inheritance that would normally come your way if you happened to be in Greece, meaning the Byzantine Empire, when the inheritance was divided. But if the sagas are to be believed, it might have been worth risking your inheritance to try and make it as an imperial bodyguard. According to the Laxdala saga from Iceland, the first Icelander to join the guard was a guy with the interesting name Bollibollason. In the early 11th century, he traveled through Denmark to Constantinople, where he joined the Varangian guard and served with distinction for many years. During his time in Byzantine service, he amassed considerable wealth, especially relative to other Icelanders, and when he returned home to Iceland, they were all suitably impressed. When he arrived, he rode from his ship with a retinue of 12 men, all dressed in scarlet and sitting on gilded saddles. Bolly himself wore furs and a scarlet cape, and not only his saddle but also his sword and helmet were gilded. His shield was red with a golden knight painted on it. The saga describes how all the women gawked at him and all his finery wherever he went. One of the most famous of the guards, and one who also made quite an impression when he eventually returned home, was a Norwegian called Harald Sigurdsson. He fled his native Norway and went first to Gordariki before he eventually ended up in Constantinople, where he joined the Varangian Guard in 1035 or so. He served in the Guard for about a decade, starting sometime in the middle of the 1030s, participating in 18 battles all across the Byzantine Empire in Sicily, Bulgaria, and in Anatolia. He was granted promotions and various honors in recognition of his service, but his time in the Varangian Guard almost ended in disaster. He was thrown into jail, accused of having stolen loot belonging to the crown that was plundered during a campaign where he was a commander in the Guard. Harold's fortunes shifted and he was released in April of 1042 when Emperor Michael V was overthrown. The deposed emperor took refuge in a church, physically clinging to the altar, but that didn't help him much. According to tradition, it was Harald himself who blinded him. After all this drama, Harald wanted to leave the Varangian guard, but his request was turned down by the new rulers in Constantinople. Nonetheless, Harald managed to escape aboard two ships filled with his loyal men and all the riches he'd collected during his years in imperial service. Harald made it home to Norway, where he eventually became king under the name Harald Hardrada, or Harsh Ruler. He eventually met his death at the Battle of Stamford Bridge when he invaded England in 1066. For the first hundred years or so, the Varangian Guard consisted primarily of Scandinavians, first from Gordariki and Sweden, and later Denmark, Norway, and eventually Iceland as well. But with time, people from other places joined its ranks. After the Norman conquest of England in 1066, increasing numbers of Anglo-Saxon warriors joined the guard. By the end of the 11th century, Scandinavians no longer made up the majority of the soldiers. With time, 
the force increasingly lost its Scandinavian character altogether. The guard no longer consisted of Vikings, but rather of men from Western Europe in general. This doesn't mean that the Scandinavians were out completely though. In fact, none other than Harald Hardrada's great-grandson Sigurd I of Norway would boost the numbers of Scandinavians in Byzantine service. In the year 1107, he set out on a journey to the Holy Land that was equal parts pilgrimage and crusade. It wasn't the first crusade, but it was the first time a European monarch personally joined one of these campaigns. It lasted until 1110, and on his way back to Scandinavia, he passed through Constantinople. There, he left the lion's share of what was left of his army to enlist in the Varangian Guard, and continued home with only a small retinue consisting of fewer than 100 soldiers. But that was more or less the last Scandinavian hurrah as far as the guard was concerned. Some Scandinavians actually did participate in the ultimately failed defense of Constantinople during the Fourth Crusade in 1204, and the Varangian guard still existed for at least another few decades. The last time the force is mentioned is when the Varangians escorted William II, Prince of Achaia, to prison after he lost the Battle of Pelagonia in 1259. At this point, the Viking Age was more or less over though. The trade via the Russian rivers had more or less dried up, and most Scandinavians stayed at home. But the memory of the glories of Constantinople, the great city, remained. They were perpetuated in the sagas, told and retold from generation to generation during countless long, dark winter nights all over Scandinavia. Next time, we're staying in the east. We'll have a look at Viking activity beyond Constantinople, in the region the Scandinavians called Serkland, where the Muslims ruled. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, please consider leaving a favorable review and perhaps a bunch of stars on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to motivate me to go on producing this show. I also recommend checking out the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you're interested in more content related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry emails about things I've said or not said on the show. I look forward to hearing from you. <laughs>